Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. The year, 2008. The magazine, The New Yorker. The story, A Bitter Brew, The Rise of Extreme Beer. Is this the most important story ever written about craft brewing, Taplines listener? Those who know of what they speak certainly thought so. Tom Acetelli, in his seminal 2013 history, The Audacity of Hops, would herald a better brew as, quote, perhaps the most important mainstream magazine article on craft beer since William Least Heat Moon's A Glass of Handmade in Atlantic Monthly 21 years before, close quote. I've never actually read that one, to be honest with you, but I have read this pivotal 10,000-worder from the November 2008 issue of Condé Nast Culture Shaping Crown Jewel, and today we're going to be talking to the man who put it all together. Burkhard Bilger had been a staff writer at The New Yorker for seven years when he published A Better Brew, and a staff writer at The New Yorker he remains to this very day. His piece in the late aughts focused on a friendly tension between the mad science of dogfish head Sam Calagione and the more traditionalist sensibilities of Brooklyn Brewery's Garrett Oliver, who remain titans of the industry even now. But like all great magazine features, Bilger's encompassed so much more. Humanizing dialogue, thematic ruminations, far-flung scenes and eclectic characters. Its publication and popular reception helped endear the American craft brewing industry to the country's urbane, tone-setting, money-having consumer class on the coasts, and away we went from there. Bilger, a German-American who grew up drinking 3-2 Swill in Oklahoma, is also the author of two books, including 2023's Fatherland, a well-reviewed memoir about coming to grips with his ancestors' Nazi past. His other book is about noodling for catfish. He also wrote the definitive story on America's tugboat dynasties. The man has range, is what I'm trying to say, people, and he joins Taplines today to revisit the idea, the execution, and the legacy of a better brew. This one is for the media heads, the history heads, and the Bilger heads, too. It's Burkhard Bilger, it's the rise of extreme beer, it's the New Yorker's gift to craft brewing, and it's all right here, right now, on Vine Pairs Taplines. Joining us today on Taplines, it's Burkhard Bilger. Burkhard, welcome to the show. Uh, great to be here. Burkhard, uh, where are you joining us from today? From my house in Brooklyn, New York. Well, we're glad to have you on the show today. Uh, listeners, for those of you who are not familiar with Burkhard's work, I'm going to fan out a little bit. I'm a fan of yours, Burkhard. I didn't even tell you this in the email, but... Uh, the piece you're here to discuss today is one of my favorites that you've written, but my absolute favorite came a couple years later uh, when you published Toeheads uh, in 2010 mm. for The New Yorker, where you've been a staff writer since 2001 about New York um, and I guess just sort of dynastic uh, uh, tugboat families that I adored. Your work is excellent. It's incredibly thorough. That's not the story we're here today to discuss, though. We're here to talk about uh, a piece that you published in 2008 about what was then sort of a still nascent uh, emerging trend, uh, this this funky extreme beer scene that was sort of core to um, the American craft brewing industry at that time. That story uh, ran in 2000, November 2008. Um, it was called A Better Brew. 
the rise of extreme beer. Uh, and it was published, like I said, in the New Yorker where you, where you work as a staff writer. Burkhard, we're going to talk about that story, you know, I think in detail, we're going to deconstruct it, we're going to nerd out as media people sometimes can. But before before we do that, can you set the scene for our Taplines listeners about sort of your relationship to beer um, more broadly at, at that time, you know, through the early aughts? Like, were you... Were you drinking craft beer? Were you drinking wine? Where, where, where were you in your drinking journey, maybe? Well, I mean, I, it, was, it was an interesting journey in a way because, um, uh, you know, my my uh, family were a family of brewers from Germany. My parents moved to to the United States in 1962. Are both German, and uh, and my father's cousin owned Bilger Beer um, in, in close to the Black Forest, and they were brewing up through the late seventies and then got restarted recently. So it was always something that was kind of in the family we were interested in, but I also grew up in Oklahoma, was born there and grew up there. So beer in Oklahoma was, was strictly legally set at 3.2% alcohol. So they would actually water down some of the beers that came into Oklahoma. Um, and so I, you know, I grew up, I felt like it was within the dregs of American beer industry, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. absolutely, you know, and, and, you know, there were keg parties um, in my hometown every weekend, but and people would drink, you know, 16 of these beers to get drunk and, um, and it, and it tasted like piss and was not something I was interested in drinking. So it was, I came very late to drinking beer, you know, it sure. was not something I thought was, was, was that all that good to drink. Um, and then I think I discovered in college, I think I discovered Beck's, you know, it was one of the first sure. real imports along yep. with Heineken uh, that, that, and I thought it was, wow, this is actually worth, worth my time, worth my, my, my imbibing. Um, and I kind of went from there. I moved, when I moved to Brooklyn, um, I remember there was a, a kind of a New York brewery called Saranac that, that sold for pretty inexpensively. And, and I started to, to drink more and more of that, you know, and it was, it's interesting because by the time I wrote this piece, 2008, I mean, you know, the number of breweries in the country had gone from 200 to 1500 from 1992 yep. to 2008. And I kind of felt like, Oh damn, I may be, I may have come too late to, to talk <laughs> about this trend, you know, maybe it's already crested or something. Right. Um, and because certainly in Brooklyn by then, the local bodegas and the local small supermarket, small grocery stores held, had 10, 15 craft beers for sale. Um, and I was already starting to like kind of, you know, in that promiscuous way that craft beer drinkers do kind of go from label to label and try different things all the time and kind of educating myself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, promiscuous or as uh, H.L. Mencken, I think, coined the term omnibibulous. Uh, <laughs> they'll, drink, they'll drink anything, but never one of the same thing for too long. That would right. go on in la- latter days, uh, uh, you know, 13, 15 years later, as we are now in 2023. Uh, omnibibulousness is actually a point of much concern for the craft brewers and the beverage alcohol industry as mm. a whole, because they can't figure out how to get customers to buy their product again and again, because everyone just kind of right. wants to taste one new thing and then move on to the next thing. Right, but right, it, but right. It, but in 2008, right, yeah, there's there's kind of that rising sort of interest in broader flavor ranges that you can maybe access through beer that was not familiar to the American palate in the way that you know, it would become over the course of the next decade, thanks to some of the folks that you you covered uh, in that story. Right, um, right. I want to set the scene a little bit for listeners who maybe I'm 35, so I remember reading 
this story, I moved to New York in 2010. So I read it, I suppose I was in college when I read your story because it came out in 2008. I think I read it more or less when you published it. But there was kind of this formative moment for craft beer. And I think your article sort of hit at, you know, this really sort of uh, important inflection point, or perhaps the article itself marked an inflection point. Um, Certainly in hindsight, I think that's true. I don't know if I knew it at the time, but I'm not the only one who feels that way. Uh, Tom Assatelli, who wrote this book uh, that's sort of a, a definitive for its time, a history called The Audacity of Hops, that published in 2013, he refers to your article as perhaps, this is a quote, perhaps the most important mainstream magazine article on craft beer since William Lee's Heat Moon's A Glass of Handmade in Atlantic Monthly 21 years before. And 21 years uh, Hmm. before 2008 is 1987. I was not alive. So forget about uh, (laughs) Heat Moon's article. As far as I'm concerned, a better brew uh, is the most definitive and the most important mainstream magazine article on craft brewing. For its era, um, you described a little bit sort of your beer journey just in in broad sketches or in broad strokes uh, coming from Oklahoma, drinking that near beer, that watery stuff, which just by the way, not not too long ago was finally, uh, I think was finally taken off the books or like that cap was finally lifted like Mm, within mm. a few years ago or so. So that that is recent, yeah, recent history that that was still going on. But you, you encountered Bex and that was, I imagine if you wouldn't mind, we ask here on a history podcast, we ask our guests to date themselves. When were you in college, Burkhardt? Uh, that would have been 82 to 86. So okay. I think I, I remember so vividly. It was in Washington, D.C. I was in a singing group. We were on tour. And I think it would have been 80, 85 hmm. when I had when I had my uh, the first Bex. And I thought, wow, this is good. And it had the green bottle. It had the foil uh, neck, uh, the label on the neck. You know, it looks good. It's a premium yeah. beer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just a well-made German beer. It wasn't yep. anything fancy or unusual. It was just the same thing I, I had grown up with, but just better. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right on. And at that time, of course, as you mentioned, Heineken, uh, uh, the Dutch juggernaut is starting to really find its footing in the United States and is becoming sort of the official, the beer of choice for the yuppie, the emerging yuppie cohort uh, or or class. Right. This is conspicuous consumption that's at its height at that time. Uh, But then, you know, smash cut to Brooklyn and you're seeing craft beers appear in the bodegas, uh, you're starting to see sort of this explosion, as you mentioned, 200 breweries uh, to about 1,500 in in, uh, 2008 when you published the piece. You're starting to see the results of that at retail. When did you get the idea of like, hey, man, this is actually a thing. I should look into this. Maybe I'm going to get my editor on the horn and uh, and see if there's a there there. Um, You know, I think there was a I'm trying to remember that there was a, a store in Brooklyn called Beercraft for a short time, and it had and it was run by people who had a, a broader and broader. I mean, they were doing the first lambics I'd had, and yeah, yeah. sour ales, and that, all that kind of thing. Um, and I started to get a sense of this thing is is really burgeoning. You know that this isn't just uh, you know like five kinds of mustard. It's going to turn into a thousand right. kinds. You know, and right. it's and it's uh, and it has a potential. Um, so I think that was that just became clear to me. And I think IPAs were just starting to really emerge as a dominant yes. style at yes. that point. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'd and I'd had Dogfish Head 60 Minute and thought it was terrific. Um and then I, you know, and I, I think I remember what the the hook for me that was interesting that that made me, you know, with these pieces, it's always 
you know, this is, I think, a, a 9,000, 10,000 word piece. Ten, right? oh, so, uh, I counted it up, uh, not one by one, but I threw it in a word counter. You clocked in at like nine, nine, seven, seven, five. You just sort of. <laughs> Just throw it at 10,000 words. Your editor yeah. probably had a heart attack. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you know, these pieces, it's a lot of, that's a lot of room. Um, and you have, you have to have multiple threads to carry the story. Um, and, you know, there's a lot about beer that's fascinating inherently. Like the history of beer is, is amazing. You know, just all the way going back to Neolithic times and people doing early beers, all, you know, Reinheit's get bored. You can, there's so much history that's, that's fun to talk sure. about. The, the history of American brewing is fascinating, you know, prohibition and the, the proliferation of breweries and then the, and the kind of demise of so many of them in industrialization, all that stuff was interesting. And then Sam, I knew I'd met Sam um, and talked to him and I found him to be a really great character. I mean, yep. both very quotable and funny, but also like unexpected, you know, like he looks like a jock and kind of a, a guzzler, but he's also kind of an artist and a, and a, and a thinker, a philosopher. So, you know, that was great. But the thing that really, um, for me made it a story worth telling, or at least was a hook for it was this idea that kind of pushed back against some of what he was doing. Mm. You know, this idea, like when I, I have a quotes with Garrett Oliver and you know, and Garrett was, and Sam were friends, and I think Garrett makes amazing beers. But but there was a slightly, it was a brewmaster of Brooklyn Brewery, by the way, listeners. Yeah, exactly. And Garrett yeah. Garrett Oliver, wonderful brewer. Um, but you know, there was a sen- certain sense of wait, are we are we going too far? Are we are we have we taken this anti Budweiser, anti thin Pilsner thing to the point right. where it's become a caricature of itself, or it's doing stuff that's not really beer anymore? Yeah. And I found that an interesting way to frame it. Like, wh- what does it mean to make extreme beer or, or, or these new beers? Did you know, I mean, there's been a lot of, frankly, I mean, there's been an enormous amount of writing about the craft brewing industry at this point. Of course, it is now closing in on 10,000 breweries. It's a massive 26 billion with a B dollar industry in the United States. So, of course, there's been an enormous amount of, you know, reporting and coverage of it since 2008. Uh, frankly, a lot of it's not been so great. I think it's uh, oftentimes for a mainstream journalist or for a mainstream outlet, um, there's kind of a, a surface level hook that they'll they'll take a look at and then, you know, uh, oh, this is a fun success story. Oh, these zany beers, right? And certainly your story had some of that. But what struck me as this piece, I went back and read it in preparation, uh, uh, you know, for, for our interview um, here on Taplines today. And what struck me in reading this piece is like, you didn't actually, and this is, I don't mean to, you know, make you blush here, but like, you didn't fall into some of those gimmicky pitfalls that I think uh, you could have been forgiven for falling into at that Mm. early stage in coverage. That framing um, that you described, sort of the the Garrett Oliver uh, on one side, sort of the polished, um, suave. Uh, that's who he is as a person, by the way. And then also his approach to beer. He, he publishes, uh, the, you know, the Oxford companion on, uh, beer. He's, um, a historian, a student of the traditions surrounding beer, the history, the ingredients, et cetera, et cetera. Sam Calagione at Dogfish Head on the other side, uh, just as much of a student, just as much of a scholar, but to your point, much more of a, um, sort of wild card, uh, uh, in terms of his, approach to brewing his interest in pushing the limits on beer. I mean, the subhead of your piece is the rise of extreme beer that is embodied in, in your story by Calagione, of course, who's out there experimenting with Paraguayan hardwoods and, you know, f- various, uh, 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 
herbs and uh, oyster shells and <laughs> minerals that he's putting into his beer. He's known throughout the industry, even uh, at that time, and certainly since, as someone who is is you know more intrigued with the limits of what beer can be. This is a long winded question. That dynamic or that dichotomy strikes me as more or less like the most prescient or one of the most prescient ones that would come to define a uh, craft brewing over the course of the next decade. And you sort of ferreted it out. Maybe you lucked into it. Maybe you really had a beat on this thing all the way through. How did you find, I mean, you found Sam. Well, how did you find the two of them? <laughs> um, how, how did I find them personally or talking to them or how did you find them personally? And then follow up question. How did you realize that, that this was the tension of the piece? Um, you know, I actually, I'm trying to remember, I think Sam actually sent me to Garrett, you know, mm. and, I, and I, and I, there was a period where I was just casting around trying to find the kind of leader, thought leaders in the industry and brewers who were interesting. And Garrett was certainly an interesting character. I mean, he sure. is this very suave guy, but he wears these outfits and he has this kind of plummy voice and very, you know, he's, he's an interesting figure. Um, and he <laughs> then sent me, I went to Germany and to Belgium and I talked to brewers there, went to the beer university in Weihenstefan. So I did a pretty wide swoop. Um, and then I settled on these two guys. Um, you know, I think part of the reason I thought that framing worked um, was that it wasn't a gimmick. You know, it was actually mm. true to the history of beer. I mean, there is this divide between the Reinheitsgebot and the German beers and the Belgian beers and, and where they use we're always more open to lots of different ingredients. Um, and not only that, you know, the, the, the kind of idea of beer as a kind of a grab bag that uses bittering agents of all kinds, you know, um, goes back to what I mean, like I mentioned King Midas's tomb, you know, where they had like saffron and other kinds of ingredients. So, and I was able to talk to Patrick McGovern, the archeologist in at university of Pennsylvania. So I felt like this, this kind of extreme, this, this debate or this dialogue between what we, you know, whatever session beers versus, you know, whatever you call them. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's true to the history of beer. So it allowed me to like both have these characters that embody it, but also like talk about where that all came from. Did you find yourself persuaded more? uh, You played the piece more or less down the middle, I thought. And it was a really good drawing out in my opinion of sort of the two camps. And then of course, backdropped against sort of this broader commodity industrial um, you know, industry uh, business that's going on in the background, the anheuser Bushes, the Miller Coors, uh, the Heinekens of the world, who are looking to maybe rip off or then maybe acquire or maybe crush um, some of the upstart craft breweries. But you played, you know, this this tension really well throughout the piece. Did you find yourself at the time persuaded more by one or the other? The extreme beers versus the the sort of traditionalists? Well, I mean, I loved... Sam's approach. And I found it very, you know, just charming and also exciting. Like it seemed like the right approach for the time. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, to be perfectly honest, you know, Garrett's beers are, were more predictably great. Yeah. You know, there were some of Sam beers that I loved and some of them I really did not like, you know, whereas <laughs> right. Garrett's beers, I mean, consistently Garrett's beers would be good. It wouldn't be as often that it would be one that would just be ex- kind of think, oh my God, I've never had anything like that before, but they were so consistent. Um, I, I think the other thing that played into it at the time was, you know, the American craft brewers just weren't as good then as they are now. You know, there's yeah. a lot of people who were still kind of amateurs finding their, learning their craft and like, and finding their footing. And, 
and you know, and and Sam, I think, was really important for fostering that adventurous culture. But at the same time, I'd go around for a few years after that, and I would try all these beers, and often they were terrible. Bad. You know, they're un- yeah, unbalanced, right. weird. Like people hadn't didn't know what they were doing. It took a while before sure. before it was consistently good. What was the backdrop, or what was the the broader sort of marketplace like? When you were writing this story, I'm, I'm thinking back to, and in 2006, 2007, I was, you know, leading up to this piece because you were doing the reporting. I think you went to GABF in 2007, if I'm not mistaken. So you were mm-hmm. doing the reporting on this leading into obviously what months, maybe years uh, that you were working on this, maybe in the background. But at that time, you know, you said that IPAs are just starting to sort of come on and that's, that's, that's right. I mean, listeners, it's hard to think of a time when IPA wasn't the dominant craft beer style, but it's true. And not so long ago, it was not uh, it, this sort of hegemonic um, you know, segment, this force that it is now within the category. What were people drinking at that time in the craft beer, you know, sort of broad uh, uh, offerings out there? You know, it was, um, there were a lot of pale ales, um, mm. there were a lot of British style beers, uh, you know, the, I, you know, that wasn't so much the, I, I felt like a lot of the craft brewers went to went to Belgium and to British styles vers- as opposed to German styles because the mm. German styles still felt more old-fashioned. They want to differentiate themselves. So you saw a lot of pale ales. You saw a fair amount of, you know, saisons and and, uh, and and Belgian ales. Like, you know, Chimay was already something that people sure. drink. And some of these some of these, uh, these uh, Trappist ales were Delirium were Tremens with the, with the Delirium opaque bottle. Tremens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... It wasn't yet, you know, it's interesting to me now because I'm always dismayed that I can hardly find brown ales in, in Brooklyn anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a, there'll be 10 kinds of IPAs, no brown ales, you know, a few Pilsners and, 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 and some other oddball things. But, but, but it's hard to find the kind of classic styles. And those were still in evidence, you know, like Smutty Nose Brown Ale. There were some of these, sure. these, these beers that, that, were, that were kind of... I think Smutty Nose was pretty well established already, but anyway, they were. Those were kind of the people went more to those standard styles, but but better than the stuff we were used to. It's funny you bring up brown ales. We spoke. Um, we've spoken about sort of that moment for craft brewing. I think we we talked about it with Sam Calagione when he was on the show. We had him to, on to talk about uh, Ninety Minute, which was the for the first Imperial uh, India Pale Ale that was ever registered with the uh, with the TTB with the uh, Tax and Trade Bureau, which uh, monitors and approves labels for beer. But his point was that at at that time when they rolled out with that, and that would have been like 2000, right around the turn of the century, right? Y2K uh, sort of era. Um, his point was at that time, you know, brown ale was a dominant style. This was, I mean, Peach Wicked. I don't know if you were, if that rings a bell for you, but brown, yeah, ale, sure. brown ale was, you know, like the format for that. Um, and, and that kind of looked like where, you know, if you wanted to launch a successful brewery in, in 1997, uh, your investors, if they had any, any wits about them, they would ask you, well, what's your brown ale or, you know, what's your flagship, you know, right, uh, right, time, right. time, times have changed, uh, Bernard. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting to me, too, with the rise of IPAs, it kind of, to me, was paralleled by the rise of ultra dark chocolate and and, and French roast coffee. And there was third, this third wave coffee. Was yeah, this, yeah, sure, sure. Right. There was this kind of um, this kind of foodie trend, which was 
focusing in on on bitterness and on purity and on, or, or 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 intensity you know and 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 every, and and to some of it was i thought was was great it was kind of like saying wait a second this thing that we've been worried about is actually kind of a wonderful taste and it's right. it's a wonder it can be a wonderful but some of it to me was a certain kind of elitist thing you know like mm. I, I i will eat even darker chocolate than you will eat i don't eat 75% or 80% i want 95% cocoa or so, you know, I want the sure. ultra bitter, you know, and it felt like that was to some degree that became a runaway train in, in, in all those industries, um, for a while. I don't know if it's tapering off now, but, uh, in coffee, chocolate and beer, it all kind of went in that same direction. It's taken on new sort of, uh, veneers, I think, but there's this, I, I think the accelerationist impulse and the sort of um, excess for its own sake, uh, and performative sort of, um, appetites or advancements in palate. I think that mm. has carried on through, but I want to unpack that a little bit because I think this is also something that's running through the story that you published in 2008. And I think it, again, would be a very prescient thread that would come to sort of, uh, um, the fore uh, in the in the next decade, as craft brewing in the United States goes through an enormous boom cycle um, from whatever, let's call it 2010 to 2017, 2018 or so, and it starts to slow down. And that is sort of this, there's an underlying, and I think you, you mentioned it in the piece as sort of, or maybe Calagione himself, I forget, it might be a direct quote actually, but like purists versus populists, right? Like there's, there's this mm -hmm. idea of, First of all, like, you know, which recipes are, are, you know, quote unquote good because they're by the book, which ones are, um, you know, uh, should be given more credence or should be appreciated more because they demonstrate a level of innovation and, uh, exploration and that, that, you know, adventure spirit that Calagione embodied. Um, the other thing that I think is at play there is this concept of, you know, of sort of, uh, uh, class and, and conspicuous consumption, which was a phrase that used to be associated with Heineken 20 years ago, 20 years prior to your article, um, mm -hmm. but would start to sort of settle on, uh, or, you know, be a, a mantle that craft brewing enthusiasts for better or worse found themselves saddled with. And, when we talk mm. about dark chocolate or we talk about, you know, third wave coffee or, or fair trade coffee or bean to bean to bar chocolate or uh, or or craft beer, I think those products, um, you know, there there was an elitism or and it continues to be, I think, an elitism to some extent around like what you appreciate versus what the masses appreciate, right? I have a more, uh, my tastes are more refined. Uh, my, mm -hmm. I, I, I know which types of hops are in this and I can detect them. Right. Like, and there's, there's right. truth. There's truth to that. Certainly like people have trained palates, people like this is a real, these are disciplines that people spend their lives sort of mastering. So I don't want to discredit the idea that, you know, there are different hop varietals or there's variation within beers that can and should be detected and understood. But I think that craft beer, you know, around this time starts also to become a venue for expressing certain 
I don't know, for lack of a better term, like uh, uh, predilections or, or tastes or uh, affectations um, mm. that become associated with uh, like different uh, uh, socioeconomic classes with different cohorts. Does that resonate sure. to you at all? Because I might be projecting sure. on your story here. Like I no, have no, the benefit, no. I have the benefit of hindsight, but <laughs> uh, tell me what that does. That ring a bell to you? <laughs> oh no, it absolutely does. And and to be honest, I feel like Sam knew that from the beginning and was yeah. kind of playing both sides of that argument from the beginning. I mean, and he would he would say, you know, I want to be able to command the same respect, the same prices that fine wine can can command. I want that for beer. Um, at the same time, you know, he was opening a, a loose limbed like burgers and beer place and, right. you know, and right. and he wanted to be the every man and the populace. And I think that was also honest on his part. He didn't want to just have, you know, pinky raised beer tastings all over the country. He, he wanted he wanted both. He wanted to improve American beer, but he also wanted to have beer, this thing which had the potential to be as good as, you know, or as 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 expensive as a fine wine. I mean, Jim Cox did. I forget what Cox is um, a beer that oh, I wish I could Utopia. remember the name, but Utopia. Right. But that was yeah. like one of those early truly fine beers that he wanted to command wine prices for. Um, yep. So I think they were kind of playing both sides of that. And I do feel like overall it is, it has certainly raised the quality of beer dramatically in this country. Um, so I think it's, it has succeeded on both sides to some degree, but I, you know, I go to my local bar now in, in Brooklyn, a couple of ones that I go to and they have a huge beer list. And honestly, I am completely at sea. I feel like it's become, sure. It's become, uh, a category for experts in a lot of ways. I don't know where to start. You know, the, the, the normal, I don't know all the styles necessarily or the names or so I have to taste like six beers before I find one that I, that's kind of what I want. Whereas I go to Germany and because my, my kids live in Berlin now. So I go there a couple of times a year and it's still kind of got this large category, dozens and dozens of solidly well-made beers. And I think we haven't, we still haven't quite gotten to that point where we yeah. have both. We have yeah. both the fine wine version and the just the, the kind of solid middle ground. Yeah, my kingdom for a decent coal service. You know, like this. Right. This, this, is, this is all we ask here. All some of us right, ask right, here right. In, in, in the United States, and uh, right. and it's hard. It's still very hard to find. You're you're right, right? Like the market has gone in directions unambiguously. I don't think there's any dispute. I think craft brewing's harshest critics of which I maybe am one, uh, depending on who you ask, would would say that the the movement, such as it was, uh, the industry, has advanced and raised the floor on the quality uh, and the complexity of American beer and the American beer drinking palate. I don't think that's really up for debate. Um, but right. your point is well taken, which is that it's also, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, it didn't necessarily push us into sort of those Europhilic or Anglophilic sort of upper reaches that the first generations of uh, American craft brewers uh, had initially started out emulating, as you described, you know, instead of uh, the the beautiful, you know, uh, uh, you know, being able to get a Hells or a Kolsch or uh, just a well-made um, uh, Pilsner in every town in America, uh, it, well, you, that's not necessarily a guarantee. What you can get, though, uh, Burkhard, is 15 different hazy IPAs 
uh, that right. tastes like uh, <laughs> bubble gum or uh, tricks for kids, you know? So right, 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 right. Uh, we, we opened Pandora's 12 pack <laughs> and uh, what, <laughs> what came out, uh, right. you know, maybe what hath we wrought, right? <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, it's funny for me to go to Oklahoma now in the summers to visit my, uh, my relatives and, uh, and Oklahoma, you know, like the, my, you know, I'm from Stillwater, Oklahoma, like 50,000 folks, you know, there, there's a strip there that used to sell the most beer per capita in the United States in a city block. And, um, and it was all Pabst and, and like I said, 3.2. And now there are all these crazy small, uh, you know, small craft breweries in, in Oklahoma yeah. doing all kinds of wacky stuff. Um, sure. And so that's been shocking to me to see like my local cowboy friends, you know, um, drinking these experimental brews or yeah. what would have passed for that. Yeah. So I want to, I want to go back a little bit to, you mentioned something about Calagione and, and sort of this, this idea of, you know, being serious and elevating beer to a level of sort of culinary refinement that wine has long occupied in sort of the American imagination or the culinary imagination of this country. Um, of course, it also occupies a higher price point, which is attractive from a business sense, you know, selling a 12 pack or a, a, a six pack or whatever for 13 bucks is a much different business than selling a bottle of uh, Merlot for $35. Um, and if you can capture those higher price points, especially in 2008, um, you're sitting pretty as a brewer. So there was, there was both a, maybe a, a, a cultural or, a, um, you know, sort of a, an ambitious aspect to pushing into those higher reaches and then also a, a business imperative for, for Caligione. Mm. But I think that that tension, and this is certainly not just something that Sam uh, was participating in. I think that that was in tension at that time with what you described as sort of a fucking rollicking, uh, 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 you know, base uh, course. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know, like second uh, chaos <laughs> that a lot of brewers embraced and leaned into. I want to read a passage, a quick passage from your piece. There's a quote here, uh, quote, the king of beers once served in splendid isolation in many bars is now surrounded by motley bottles with ridiculous names like jesters at a Renaissance fair, skull splitter, Old Leg Humper, Slam Dunkle, Troll Porter, Moose Drool, Power Tool, Hebrew, and Ale Mary Full of Taste, close quote. <laughs> so, like, I mean, look, like, this was, a, I think, like a, a puberty for the industry. Uh, you know, I think there was a lot of growing up that had yet to happen. Um, but this is, I think, pretty unambiguously upon reflection, corny, right? Like, this is, these are not, like real good jokes. These are like goofy little fucking puns, which is fine, but not if you're trying to say, Hey, we're the same as wine. Like take us, we, you know, it's like the uh, arrested development. Say like we demand to be taken seriously. It's like, well, I don't know, man, like maybe stop marketing old leg humper, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to, you know, I have to say, I kind of love that. I love that, that, that phase. It was a Fair. little bit like being in, in the early punk scene and in, in the seventies and eighties, you know, like sure. all those crazy, you know, the butthole surfers or whatever, right. you know, that was, right. it, it, they were, they were like, like people who wanted to be serious musicians, but also a large part of it was to just give a middle finger to society or to, or to the old, old ways of doing things, you know? And I thought, and I think Sam was, I mean, his genius was kind of knowing that that was, those two things were not necessarily in conflict, like mm. that he could, he could be this kind of rock and roll brewer, 
you know, and, and do things like, you know, put hot rocks and, 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 and oysters and, and, and blue green algae into his beers. Um, and, and at the same time, and kind of get a reputation for for dangerousness and and experimentation that would actually sell, you know, that he would get a following that way. Um, so I think he he again he kind of did that fairly deliberately. He had like he, Andy Warhol was one of his big um, and Coco Chanel were they were two of his his real idols, um, and they were both people who were both daring but also like intensely commercial minded, you know. Yeah, and that was yeah. those were hand in hand. Did you see a lot of that? I mean, Sam, I think is at the is at the zenith, uh, especially at this point. I mean, he's really in his element. Um, Sam obviously still works in the industry. He's he's still running Dogfish Head, which was acquired in 2019 by Boston Beer Company um, by Jim Cook's uh, the company that Jim Cook co-founded um, and serves as the chair of. But Sam is still working, and like I said, we had him on the pod. He's he's incredibly charismatic. He's magnetic he has an obvious passion for this stuff he's he knows of what he speaks etc cetera, etc cetera. sam i would put forth as sort of the the paragon of what you're describing did you see it represented or reproduced throughout the industry at large when you were reporting this piece you know i i i, I did like i said i did a fair amount of traveling and so i saw all kinds of types you know yeah. i went to the uh, the orval factory or orval monastery in belgium and and it was an interesting scene there because it was like uh, it's ostensibly done by trappist monk but there's one very professional brewer with a very professional brewing <laughs> outfit in the middle of the of the old castle doing his thing you know and once a year the monks get together and shoot a video of them putting the Orval bottles in paper, but really that's their only connection to this beer whatsoever. <laughs> you know, so I had those guys, and then, God, I'm, this is embarrassing, but the Vinny from Russian River Brewing. Chilerzo, um, yeah. He was amazing, and I hung out with those guys, and, and of course, you know, you always have to nod to the West Coast as being the real progenitor for so much of this, and the early, early, um, you know, so much early stuff came from there. Certainly. Um, and they were you know, a lot of the other brewers, they were all kind of fun to be around. I think what was different about Sam was that he was just so articulate mm. and he, um, and he, he kind of both was having fun with it, but he, but he had a philosophy that he could articulate and, um, and explain why he was doing what he was doing. So often I think with other people, they were like, like chefs, you know, chefs aren't necessarily the most the most well-spoken folks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but they but they have an an amazing intuition for how tastes go together and they have they 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 love their craft but they're not necessarily the best thinkers about it. Well, that was always the funniest thing about you probably remember this because you lived through it just like I did. There was a period and again, this is last decade, so a little bit after you wrote this story uh, in 2008, but there was a real groundswell uh seemingly advanced purely by publicists and sort of glossy magazine writers, the New Yorker notwithstanding, uh, not not exempt from what I'm about to say, but that we're trying to advance this idea that like uh, chefs are the new rock stars. Do you remember that mm. slogan being oh, thrown, sure. around, thrown around a ton, right? Like, and there was this idea like, oh, like they're the new rock stars. It's like, well, kind of, because it is, <laughs> there's this enormous appetite, you know, cultural appetite for better food experiences, better restaurant experiences, uh, uh, provenance and sourcing and ingredients and whatever. But also like being a rock star, there are, you know, sort of uh, cultural implications there that many chefs had no interest in participating in. They, they just right. wanted to be on the line. They didn't want to be fucking talking to cameras all the time. Like, uh, right, and, and, right. Brewer, and brewers faced some of that as well. There was this idea like, 
oh, brewers are the new rock stars. Craft breweries are where, you know, sort of like everything is headed uh, culinarily. That's where the gravity is right now. It really felt like that. And I think to some extent it was true and borne out in the sales figures uh, as craft brewing was growing double digit percentage points year over year throughout most of last decade. But that doesn't mean necessarily that everyone is as charismatic and articulate and electric as the Sam Calagione, uh, in yeah. the industry, right? Yeah. Like. No, I mean, I think that the, the chef equivalent of Sam was Anthony Bourdain, you know, sure. and, and, and he was, and, and, and instructively, you know, he was, he had been a chef, but he kind of dropped out of that, you know, he, and he became more of a media figure and, and talked from the inside about what it was like, but then he became more of an explainer and less of a, of a chef himself. And, and certainly my, I mean, I've profiled a number of chefs for the, for the New Yorker over the years. And, and most of them are, you know, perfectionists. They're more like, I don't know, uh, the, the really high end chefs are more like scientists than they mm. are like public figures or, or, or entertainers. You know, they're people who, who are thinking deeply about ingredients and also, you know, it's such a, it's such a high stress um, occupation, you know, but, but they're not necessarily thinkers on the level of, of the industry and what, you know, the kind of cultural stuff that Sam will talk about or Anthony Bourdain would talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Let's switch gears for a second, Burkhardt. I want to talk a little bit about sort of the impact of this story and your thought process and your editor's thought process as you're putting it together. So like we said, A Better Brew publishes November 2008. Uh, By that point, we're in the thick of the recession. Lehman Brothers went belly up like two months earlier. So you got this nice, fun piece about this, you know, the the zany beer industry. And people are like, Mm. do we have a financial system anymore? I don't know. So we've Mm. got, uh, but so the story hits. Um, When you were putting it together, did you have a sense for like, did you set out to write the definitive story? I guess is the good way of asking that. Mm. You know, in a way, I mean, I've always been, I mean, I'm kind of an old style New Yorker writer. I don't tend to do uh, super newsy stuff. I do kind of odd, oddball stories and obsessives and, and, um, and I try to always write the definitive story, I guess mm. is my, is my answer. I mean, I thought in this case, I was shocked that the New Yorker had never written and never published a beer piece. You know, we had, published innumerable pieces on wine. We'd never published a beer piece. And so I thought, wow, there is so much ground to cover here. And it's all fascinating. Yeah. Like, it's all fascinating. Like, you know, the, the like I said, the, the early historical, prehistorical stuff about how beer arose and why it was different from the way wine arose, the, 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 the kind of chemistry of it, you know, how it's made, you know, how it's, you know, and, and the laws that were passed, all this stuff to me was just so interesting. And I thought, this is an opportunity to do the definitive piece. And, and um, yeah, I kind of went about thinking this will be, I want this to be the beer piece to end all beer pieces. And that was yeah. certainly my, my hope. What about putting like the New Yorkers and this is, you know, behind the curtain here. I've never written for the New Yorker. I'm assuming most of our audience has never written for the New Yorker. When you're thinking about putting a piece like this together, obviously the, the imprimatur of the New Yorker is quite significant. It carries a lot of weight. It is a, for better or worse, it's it's a cultural bastion and, and what it says matters. And that's in no small part due to the hard work of, of uh, writers, of journalists such as yourself. But do you think about going into a story like this, we're going to put craft beer on a map in a way that it never has been before. This was a fringe thing or it was sort of a, a subcultural thing. And we're about to we're about to put this squarely in the mainstream zeitgeist. 
Does that cross your mind? Um, you know, I think in a way that the timing on this was perfect in the sense that I wasn't really defining this movement or I wasn't really kind of saying this, we need to make a movement. A movement existed. I was yeah. catching it just as it was really on the rise. And, and it was, all, you know, there were, you know, a lot of people I knew were already drinking craft beer. Um, I think what hadn't happened was this sense of this kind of broader cultural recognition that, oh, damn, there, there's this thing happening. Now and now I, you know, I'm, you know, this, this sense of, oh, I noticed there's a lot more beers. Like it's part of, it's part of a whole cultural history. It's a part of a whole American history that hadn't happened. And I think for me, um, doing it in the New Yorker where I knew there were a lot of people who would appreciate those details mattered a lot. I wanted to kind of, to kind of set this thing in context and say, look, this isn't just a bunch of nutty guys experimenting with beer and putting funny names on the labels. This is part of this whole long arc of, of American craft brew history. And, and we're kind of finally coming around to what we once had, you know, and I thought that story uh, would appeal to, to the New Yorkers and it would start to, as you know, to some degree it legitimizes the category and it says, look, there's more to it than we thought, but it's also just kind of acknowledging what's already there. Mm, mm-hmm. I'll say, as I think you're being modest, uh, I'll say that when the New Yorker did this story, I think it got a lot easier for a lot of, uh, working journalists, myself being one who came along, hmm. whatever, three, four years later to pitch seri- more serious stories about craft beer and to do hmm. maybe a little bit longer form stuff uh, that's a little bit more thoughtful about the space. Someone has to go first. And certainly you're not the only writer and The New Yorker isn't the only publication, but this was a this was, I think, a real watershed moment that maybe gave a little bit of cover or sort of opened the floodgates a little bit more to, you know, craft brewing as a prism through which to discuss larger cultural, historical, political, you know, uh, themes that are sort of unfolding in the country. So I think you're being a little bit modest, Burkhard, but we'll let you. Well, I mean, <laughs> you're more, you're, <laughs> you're, fo- you're welcome to, I'll brag for you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I've, I've, I have to, I have to say one thing I loved about the response to the piece was it wasn't just, you know, I got a lot of response of people saying, oh, this is fascinating or the things you usually get for a story, but I also got people, you know, uh, saying, you know, I was on a train reading this article and I realized I'm going to drop, I'm going to, I'm quit my job. I'm going to start a brewery. You know, I got, you know, there are a lot of people who, who I think might've in the back of their minds thought about getting into beer um, and didn't realize how deep and rich a field it is. You know, one of the things I loved going to the beer university in Weihenstefan in Germany was realizing, man, if I hadn't been a writer, I might've been a brewer because yeah, yeah. It's, it's everything. You're a cook, you're a biochemist, you're a marketing person, you're a, you know, you're a fermenter. You're like, you're doing things on all these different levels. And it, and just the appeal of that and being connected to that history, I think kind of, I think came through in the story. And I think that, that was, that probably did inspire some folks, which was great. Yeah, I bet it did. And I mean, this is still, like I said, I mentioned the recession just moments ago. This was a point where a lot of people uh, either, you know, if they lost their jobs, maybe that's one thing, or they just see sort of, man, you, you know, everything is so fleeting and so fluid right now and chaotic. I need to be doing something that I care about more because this job could be gone tomorrow. 
And you see coming out of the recession in 2008, 2009, 2010, uh, you see craft brewing continue to grow even at a time when, you know, like the economy writ large is scrambling for stability, is scrambling for, you know, steady sources of capital. So I think like, you know, if they read the the Burkhard Bilger 10,000 Worder in the New Yorker in November 2008 and they quit their job on the train, they call their boss and say, I'm out of here. I'm going to go brew brown ale. Uh, maybe that's maybe that's one person, but maybe it's representative of a sort of broader attitude that I think has some echoes to what we experienced at, throughout the pandemic, where like people are like, "Gosh, what am I doing here? Like, this doesn't matter. Like, I want to go do something that matters, right?" So I, right, I cannot, right. I can, I can understand why people might have reacted that way, especially in two thousand eight when there's only fifteen hundred brewers and there are still major American cities with only one or two craft breweries there's i mean the 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 canvas is almost blank it feels like opportunity right oh i mean you know i mean that's what i saw in oklahoma that was so great um yeah yeah. because you know it's it was it's always been kind of a one one business economy it's all oil there you know and 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 small town oklahoma like where i grew up or or mid-sized cities there were there just only so many ways to make a living it always felt um and suddenly you're realizing oh damn like everybody drinks beer in this state. Yeah. And not everybody naturally loves this beer we're drinking. So there, there's a, there is a market here. And, and to see all these kind of scruffy local breweries, you know, they're, like two or three brew pubs in my hometown now that to see that happen was really gratifying. Yeah. Oh, I bet. And I mean, I think, you know, again, for all the criticism, uh, and sort of like harder reporting that I do or try to do on the craft brewing industry, I think there's sort of a core truth that it has been an enormous economic engine for places like a Stillwater, Oklahoma, that maybe did not have necessarily uh, uh, like these opportunities for like light manufacturing, which is basically what brewing is, uh, right? Like these are, no one's <laughs> opening, you know, small uh, uh, 50 worker plants um, in, right. you know, in, in whatever, uh, this small city somewhere throughout the country in 2008, but breweries are starting to open and breweries continue to open throughout the course of uh, the decade that would follow. And even today in 2023, even though growth is basically flat in the craft brewing industry, or maybe a little bit down, depending on how you slice it, opening still outpays closures. I mean, people are still, mm. still see opportunity in this business. We're closing in on 10,000 breweries in the country. Um, and there are still niches that people feel that they can go out and that they can fill in the way that, you know, uh, in 2008, you know, earlier, uh, uh, when you, when you joined up with Caligione and with Oliver and, um, with the rest of the folks that you talk about in your story, um, in the way that they found those niches, uh, back then. So it's still happening. It's certainly different, but, um, in terms of, you know, sort of the pace at which it's happening, but that spirit is still there. And I think that, that appetite for, you know, innovation and, uh, uh, being able to sort of just experiment and have fun with it, I think is something that craft brewing as an industry would do well to reconnect with more rather than, you know, sort of push towards the hard seltzer commodification sort of direction that I think the rest of the beverage alcohol industry is heading. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just, that's not even a question. That's just a reflection. I mean, you, I mean, you mentioned the financial crisis. I mean, that's, that's always been true with beer, right. That, or, or with, with alcohol that, in hard times, people drink. So yes. it's like <laughs> when things are good, people drink. When things are bad, people yeah. drink. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. Anyway. The beer is famously recession-proof. Beverage alcohol, more or less recession-proof. Of course, the luxury end of things, people are not buying bottles of uh, of uh, Dom Perignon, of uh, 
of Carbassier uh, necessary <laughs> of nice mm. nice liquor when there's a recession, but they are consistently buying beer and they're consistently buying value price wine and they're cons- consistently buying spirits, which is why it's mm. such an attractive investment and always has been. Um, mm. Mm. You know, that's more at the the industrial side of the scale. Uh, there are mm. not that many publicly traded craft brewers, but your point is mm. well taken. Burkhard, uh, we've gone the distance here. We're, we're closing in an hour. Um, I want to call this episode the ballad of old leg humper, but I'm not going to because we've, <laughs> <laughs> we've talked about so many, so many more interesting, interesting and, and fascinating and frankly, deeper uh, 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 topics. than I think that name would encapsulate, but I do want you to put on the thought experiment cap here at tap lines uh, and sort of think about, or, you know, like uh, look back on where the beer industry has gone since you wrote the article. You're not really someone you, you, as you said, you told me before we got on, you haven't necessarily kept up on reporting on the industry and why would you, that's not really your main beat, but you obviously still drink beer. You still pay attention to what you see in the bars, in the, in the liquor stores, in the bodegas. Um, you're a consumer of beer here in the American drinking landscape. Reflect a little bit for me on in 2008, you see one version of what craft brewing can be. Um, or you see maybe a lot of possibilities for where it can go in 2023. It has gone to some of those places. It has not gone not has not taken some of those other paths. Reflect for Mm. me a little bit on how things have taken shape in ways you maybe expected, or maybe, you know, maybe didn't in the intervening 15 years for, for the craft brewing industry. Well, I mean, on the, on the positive side, I think it's been amazing to see the just the the rise in, in ability that I, I mentioned earlier that back then there was it was a pretty hit or miss category. Right, you know, right. you yeah, never yeah. knew what you were gonna get. And I feel like that's just not true anymore. I mean, I go almost anywhere I try a beer, it will be at least well made. You know, it will be uh, I mean, there's you know, there's still flops and but but in general you have a sense of the real skill in the industry, which is exciting and great. Um I think I wouldn't have anticipated the kind of monolith of the IPA mm. overtake, you know, I mean, I, at the time, I mean, Sam had already done 90 minute IPA. He'd already done 120 minute IPA, yep. which was yep. 12% alcohol, you know, and, and it felt a little bit like he was sketching out the, the extremes, but, but I don't think even he would have guessed that the IPA would become the absolute norm in so many craft brewing establishments, you know, and that, that to me is, is a, it's a bit of a shame. I mean, I kind of, like I said earlier, I kind of wish there was some of the more traditional normal styles would still be around more often, like a, a straight ahead brown ale or a culture and all those kind of things were. Um, but, but, you know, I feel like that's still, I don't think we've yet gotten to the point that wine is at where there's a multiplicity of, of wines, but it's a fairly kind of graspable, understandable set of, 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 of types. And you kind of know what you're getting, you know, and there are different flavors within it. I kind of feel like, like the beer industry has gone in this strangely lopsided way where there's this enormous juggernaut of IPA and there's a million little styles on the side. And that kind of the, the kind of more traditional middle is, is a little bit underserved. I I don't think I would have expected that. I don't know what Sam would have thought, um, at the time or, or Garrett. I mean, I think in a way Garrett, what Garrett was doing, um, 
I wish there was more of Garrett Oliver in the industry right now, you know, mm. more of, and, and Steve Hindi who owned the business back there with Tom Potter. I mean, those guys, they made, I think, exciting beers, but also readily definable ones that, that fell into, that fell in with tradition. And you could kind of, you knew what you were getting. You know, I wish there was a little more of that middle still around, but Hey, I, I'll take what I got. I think it's been an exciting 20 years or 15 years. Me too. I understand. I think I, basically exactly with you on that. Of course, my beer journey is not quite as, uh, as long and varied as yours has been, but yeah, I'm, I'm basically with you there, right? Like I think we've, we've come a tremendous way, but, uh, we have a ways to go and man, um, I guess I'll start, I'm going to start a change.org brown ale petition. I'll send it to you after, <laughs> after, we're, great. after we're done with the episode. Uh, like I said, listeners, there are dozens of us uh, we demand brown ale uh, at, at a fair <laughs> at a fair price. Look out for the petition in your inboxes. It'll be signed by Dave Infante and Burkhard Bilger. Uh, Burkhard, thank you so much for joining today. It was a pleasure talking to you, uh, and uh, and uh, and we hope yeah. to have you back sometime soon. That was a good time. Good talking to you. <laughs> All right, take care. Thanks. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you, listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.